whole chapter. I'll read Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated upon the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were 24 thrones, and seated upon the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads, And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And round the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated upon the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated upon the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, our desire is that we might become wholly devoted unto the worship and service as those who were made by you and whom we have our being that we might be faithful not only in our Lord's Day worship, but all that we are, all the gifts, all that we have would be spent in devotion to the building of a kingdom that will never pass away. Lord, may this glimpse of the throne room, your throne room, around which are the elders, the four terrifying beasts, Remind us of your glory, and so give us a sense of awe and wonder before your presence, for this is real. And even now, we are there. And so make us faithful worshipers, devoted to love and good deeds, even as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. O Lord, increase the worship of the saints throughout the earth, we pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. (laughs) 
All right, as we continue through the book of Revelation, we see here a continued understanding of what is going on in heaven while the stuff of earth is happening. And that what is happening in heaven is of greater relevance to what is happening on earth than all the other councils of men. Recently, the nations that belong to the North Atlantic Treaty met to scold the nation of Russia and their invasion of Ukraine, and Russia vetoed the vote. Surprise, surprise. It happens. Nations misbehave, and those nations are led by men who crave power above all else, even if it means engaging in wicked practices of taking the lives of the innocent. And so we think, what is to be done about such councils? What power do we have? What can we do? And yet there is a council of the three persons of the Godhead. There is a throne that is established in heaven that governs all that we see on earth. And there is nothing that can be done. There is no power like the power of heaven. And that power is good, it is eternal, and it delights in the salvation of sinners. And the more we glimpse the throne room of heaven, the clearer we see the things of earth. The book of Revelation is absolutely essential to faithful Christian living, and I must repent that this is not the first book I ever preached from. <laughs> it is not the greatest of all of the books, but it is certainly the most central to how we live our lives. And I have seen too many Christians walk around with their heads down thinking that what we see in the book of Revelation is of no import or importance to our lives today. But just because we see injustice, at times the wicked flourishing while the righteous perish, it is what we see in the book of Revelation, and especially the, the glimpses of the throne room that we are to understand as the center of all that happens on earth. And I would argue that this is to guide and govern our thoughts and our emotions, our doctrine and how we apply that doctrine to our lives. That our view of the earth is to be the view of those who sit and are surrounding the throne of heaven. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Three points that I want to make. The first, the view from the throne. The second, the worship of the angels, and then thirdly, the worship of men or the saints. The view from the throne, the worship of the angels, and the worship of men or saints. Let's look at this first point, the view from the throne. Now, many of these texts uh, have struggled. In fact, when I began this sermon series, I plotted out probably the first 15 sermons. It was a little easier to organize, especially the letters. You cover one letter a week. And as you move into these chapters that are glimpses of the throne room, you begin to realize I could spend a number of sermons on just one section because the application for these texts is immense. 
And so I would encourage you as I'm preaching through the book of Revelation that you continue to read through it over and over and over. And I would pose this to you. It's really not that complicated a book. The visions are terrifying. They are strange. The problem that we have, though, is we want to make them less strange and less terrifying, and we want to explain away the mystery and glory and beauty of them. And I would argue to you, don't. Now, in order to understand Revelation best, you need to know your Old Testament. Because the things that John sees, he uses the covenant language found throughout the Old Testament And the sort of sister book to much of what we see in the book of Revelation is the book of Ezekiel and the other apocalyptic literature that we find in the Old Testament. The problem with many Americans and modern Western Christians is we don't like apocalyptic literature because, number one, we don't like to be scared, and we want Jesus to fit in our pocket. We don't like the idea that there is a God who reigns in heaven who is beyond our control, who is far more glorious and terrifying and awe-inspiring than the God that we really want in our daily lives. We don't want Christ to consume everything. We want him in the corner. But what Revelation does is it confronts, it confronts the Christ that we pull out occasionally when we need something. No, Christ wishes to take a predominant share of all that we are and all that we do. Now, from the throne room, this perspective we read in verse 6, the first part of verse 6, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of grass, glass like crystal. Now, years ago, I went to Silver Springs, Florida with my family. Uh, Silver Springs, Florida is this park that is a spring, a giant spring, and there's this lake and all of these sort of tributaries and rivers surround it, and we got in a glass-bottom boat. And in this glass-bottom boat, we went through this sort of more murky area where they had alligator gar. Do you know what an alligator gar is? It looks like an alligator head with the body of a fish. And we went in this glass-bottom boat, and as we're in this water, we're thinking, are we going to see anything? And then all of a sudden, through the glass bottom, as we're all looking down, there comes this tooth-filled mouth. And it comes into view as we're going over it, and it just keeps going. And we pass over a 12-foot alligator gar. And I see it in all its sort of terrifying, crazy-looking splendor. This is the throne of heaven and the view from the throne. This lake of glass, this crystal clear sea speaks of the clarity that the whole throne room of heaven sees. And it is through this lens of intimate proximity that Christ and the heavenly hosts sees all there is. In contrast, 1 Corinthians 13, we read, and now we see through a glass darkly or dimly. So as we're looking up, we don't see as they see looking down. The view of Christ upon the throne or the Trinity in whom, well, the Trinity indwells Christ bodily. So when we see God, the triune God upon the throne, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are within and in the fullness of the person 
the human person of Jesus Christ. And that is the means by which we will fellowship with the Godhead in glory through the body, the human Jesus Christ. And while God, the triune Lord, is upon the throne, and the beast with all, with all of their eyes, and the 24 elders, and the whole hosts of heaven, as they look at us, the book of Hebrews says, and now with this cloud of witnesses, they see as we do not see. That we lack a vision that will be given to us upon the occasion of Christ's coming and the resurrection of the dead. And they see things as they are. They see things as they are, as they truly are. We do not. Our confidence comes in being told that Christ sees all things. Not that we see all things, but that Christ sees all things. And so despite our lack of vision, what we find in Revelation chapter 4 is the comfort and the hope and the confidence that there is a place, a command center, the center of all human history. And it is from that place that Christ sees and knows and governs all things. And so it isn't just a see. But you also see these creatures. Now we'll get more to the description of the cherubim and the seraphim. But what we do see is that these who look like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle are covered with eyes. Now we need to remember that as we're looking at these symbolic visions in the book of Revelation, these are not literal descriptions, for these are spirits. The only one who has a body is Christ. All the others are disembodied spirits. They don't have human flesh. They are not material in nature. And so when John is describing them, they don't have literal eyes all over their body. John is using human anthropomorphic language, that is the language of assigning human traits to things that don't have human traits. We know this from the Bible, the arm of the Lord. Well, the Lord doesn't have an arm, right? It refers, however, to the way in which he interacts with creation. He sees these beasts with eyes, and they're covered with them. Again, it reinforces this reality that all of the events of redemptive history are witnessed to by the whole hosts of heaven. They see it. In fact, think about this for a minute. The first time you realized and came to the understanding and awareness that the whole of human history is really a history of God's redeeming work among men. And you see, for the first time, the glorious principles of covenant theology, and that the whole of human history is really the chronicling of a God who made all things, man's sin, and then God goes out to get them and bring them to himself. And you see that the whole of Scripture is the chronicling. It's the record of God's dealing with sinful men unto the bringing in of the nations to himself. And you see it and go, what a story. This is incredible. This is about me. But more importantly, it's about Christ and what he is doing among us. And you say, I see it with new eyes. Just because our religion is grounded in words does not mean that we do not see it. 
In fact, Paul speaks of the Thessalonians. When they received the word of Scripture, he says, you received it as those who saw Christ crucified. Well, did they see him? No. None of those who were there in the city of Thessalonica saw Christ crucified. How then did they see him? To the eyes of faith. That is how we are to read Revelation. That all of these things are true. And what we need to see, Christ has given it to us. There are things we do not see. There are things that they see in the throne room that we do not see. But we still see, remember, through the glass dimly. For those of you who've ever been interrogated by the police, I hope it's not many of you. You know those one-way pieces of glass? There is the cop on one side of the table. You've seen enough cop shows if it's not been you on the other side of that table. And then there is the person they're interrogating. And then there's the captain or the others. And they're in the room and they're watching. Think of that. Christ sees it all. The beasts see it. These glorious angelic beings, the 24 elders who represent the old and new covenant churches, the whole people of God, they see it. They're covered with eyes. They see it all, but we do not. But we are told. And by being told, we see that they see, and so we have confidence that someone sees even when we do not. Is this not the great challenge to our faith? What is the plan? What's the purpose? Why cancer? Why war? Why affliction? And what we see is that all things have been ordained by God to bring to himself glory. He knows. And so you can say, if he knows, I'm good. I have confidence. And so the throne room of God is not just one that has a clear picture, but eyes to see. The angels behold the mysteries, even that we do not. And so, within this first point, the view from the throne, we have this confidence that there is a revelation that awaits us. And that revelation is not unlike what we see, but it is a fuller and more glorious picture the saints who are triumphant behold a plan and purpose that you and I cannot. And God does not owe it to us to tell us. He knows. And we know the one who knows all things. Is this not what Job learned? Job, these things are too high and wonderful for you. But God knows. We know the one who sees all. And has decreed all. And that should be enough for us. That is the view from the throne. It is a clear, true picture of all the stuff of earth and of heaven. So let's go to the second point. The worship of angels. So we look at this sea of crystal. And then around this throne of which Christ is seated. And he looks magnificent. And around him is this crown of emerald, and then there are the 24 elders, and they are on thrones, and they're wearing crowns, and aside from those elders are these beasts, these living creatures, the cherubim and seraphim, M-I-M, the suffix of cherub and seraph is just plural, it's the Hebrew plural, and there's four of them, 
The first looks like a lion, the second an ox, the third has the face of a man, and the fourth is like an eagle in flight. Now remember, these are non-literal expressions of the things that John sees of the spiritual realm. It is not unlike Jacob's vision in Genesis 28, where he sees this architecture, this building, this religious structure upon which angels are ascending and descending, and commentators and translators have a hard time explaining what it looks like. Because in that vision, there are some who say, and God stood next to Jacob. But there are those who say that God stood on top of the structure. But the truth is more sort of well-rounded and fleshed out than that. It is that God was the structure. And in fact, it's Christ Jesus. Because later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the one upon whom angels ascend and descend. Have you ever witnessed something even in creation that is almost too marvelous to describe with words? And you just stand there. Maybe a beautiful scene. I've never seen the northern lights in person, but I've seen videos of them, and even the videos of them are amazing. These glimpses of divine glory, even in the created world. How much more glorious is the throne room of heaven? What Moses beheld at the top of Sinai. And so these angels, these with different looking faces, four living creatures, each of them with six wings and are full of eyes all around and within and without, or a day and night, they are saying, holy, holy, holy. Except they're actually saying, holy, 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 holy. To the three persons of the Godhead, they say, holy, holy, holy. Their response in dwelling in the presence of Christ, the Father and the Spirit, is doxology. If you are wondering, am I growing in grace, the measure of your assurance and devotion is worship. That's it. Obviously, faithfulness. And I don't mean that worship on the Lord's day is out of alignment with everything else you do. No, it is whole devotion. It is your attention and your function is seen primarily as I am a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these creatures are teaching us. They are the directors of worship. And so when they begin to sing, the elders sing. And what makes worship sanctifying, transforming, effectual is the presence of the one to whom we give worship. You cannot be in the presence of Christ and not go, holy, holy, holy. It is inevitable. It is the only righteous reflex. And we cannot see him and not gaze upon his beauty and wonder and awe. And so the angels, remember what I said about sight? See Christ, even in a way that we do not now see him. And their response is to continually worship him. 
To see him is to know him for what he is and for who he is and what he has done. And so they sing, holy, holy, holy. Now let's talk about the beasts themselves, the cherubim and seraphim. Now we see in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10 something like this throne room scene. And the descriptions are a bit distinct, but it seems to be, especially in verses 4 through 7, that it is a description of the same kind of thing. Now what Ezekiel sees is a vision of the throne room prior to Christ's ascension. What John sees is a vision of Christ post-ascension. Ezekiel sees something that will happen in the future. And so, well, let's take the book of Daniel. Daniel sees something of the throne room, and he's told, seal up these words, because it is not yet time to reveal what is actually happening. And what is happening is this, that within the throne room of heaven, we see the glory of Christ manifested in light of his ascension. Christ's obedience to the Father has warranted, has merited, has earned his glory. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. Because Christ was obedient to death and obedient to the Father, he was honored with the crown, the chief crown, the big crown. We have little crowns. He has the big crown. And so they're looking at him. These mighty, large, powerful beasts, these are not fat babies, right? These aren't Do you know what I mean? Little fat babies with wings. These are terrifying creatures. The worship of the saints is mighty. It does not belong to the weak. Worship of God belongs to the powerful. There is no greater power than the worship of God. Worship doesn't belong to the effeminate It doesn't just belong to women and children in the church. In fact, we are to manifest in the church this kind of masculine, powerful, awe-inspiring worship. And in fact, one of the great sort of indicators of the corruption of the church is that we think that worship belongs to the weak. That it has to be overly emotive and not substantial. But the worship of the saints belongs to those with incredible strength and power. These aren't, you know, Tolkien-esque kind of elves. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you watch the Tolkien movies? All of the elves look a little bit like, I don't know, gender confused. They're very effeminate. They're very slight. They're very delicate. None of this is happening around the throne. Don't think fat babies. Think mighty animals like the sphinx or an ox. Think power. And all the power and might and energy of the angels is directed to the throne and they are crying out. It is loud. It is joyous. And it expresses what Christ has done. It expresses what the three persons of the Godhead have done. Now, why four? We've looked at the eyes. These eyes indicate their sight that even the angels behold in a way that we do not yet behold. But why four? Because there's a whole multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying these four, well, Augustine refers to these four and says they really represent the four gospels. Have y'all heard this? 
the lion, the ox, the man, the eagle, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So oftentimes in some of your Bibles, if you have a little picture that sits in front of the title of a book, it'll actually be for the book of Matthew, a picture of the lion. Mark, ox, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, man, John, the eagle. Each signifying some unique character trait of Christ, forming a more whole picture from the four Gospels. I'm not saying he's wrong. That's one particular view. Some speak of these four angels that represents the four winds of earth and the throne of Christ and its effect, his lordship goes out into all of the earth, north, south, east, west. That the throne room of Christ has no end in its effect and power. And these angels represent the power of Christ poured out on earth. Calvin, in his commentary on Ezekiel, because he didn't get to finish his commentary on the book of Revelation because he died young, wrote that these images of what John sees, and he's using human language to describe something that is beyond description, is describing the lordship of Christ over man and beast, and that all things are under his omnipotent power. I would say to you, all three of those express what? The glory of Christ shown in heaven and earth. I'm not saying you got to pick. The point is, Christ's lordship upon the throne is everywhere. There is nothing that is hidden from his sight, and there is nothing that is done by accident. Every blade of grass, every single atom is under the lordship of Christ Jesus. And so he is worthy of praise, trust, and beholding. He's not just there, and one day we'll worship him. His lordship is expressed from there, everywhere. And so now we praise him. And so these angels teach us what is proper before the throne. Worship. It's worship. Now Christ does not need our worship. He has that already. In fact, the three persons of the Godhead did not have to make men or angels to receive satisfaction. For God in himself is complete and whole. You and I are not. We depend upon one another. Remember, Adam learned this lesson from the very beginning. And so the worship that is given to Christ, to the Father, and to the Spirit is one that is a reflex for creation and redemption. Christ did not make you and me because he was lonely. It isn't one God, one person. It is one God and three persons. And so within God himself, there is a fullness of beauty and delight and satisfaction. And it is from that delight and satisfaction that you and I were made. Let us make man in our image that we are born out of and made out of the love of the persons of the Trinity. God loves himself. And because he has made us to love himself, what we do when we are in his presence, if we are made whole, is we love and adore him. And that is what the angels are doing because that's what they were made to do. That's what you and I are made to do. Sin introduced a great interruption to that. And so it is 
necessary that we be redeemed. But here before the throne, we see that Christ is worshipped because of his work of redemption, because the angels understand that they have their, their own being is given to them by God. That worship is the only right response. And so despite the terrific sight of these terrifying, awe-inspiring angels, we see the most mighty creatures that have ever been made by God, and their existence is consumed with worship. So that's the worship of the angels. Third point, the worship of the saints. We join in that doxology. Verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. The angels get it started. These four incredible beasts. And when I say beast, I don't mean simple-minded. But what else do we say? These angels with these unique appearances are the choir directors of heaven. And when the 24 elders that are the representatives of the whole covenant people of God, the invisible church, when those angels begin to sing, have you ever been to a concert and you hear the conductor taps his, I say wand, but I don't know what it's called. <laughs> and they begin to sort of tune up. And you know when you hear that sort of hum of the orchestra beginning that it's about to happen. These angels proclaim a triune blessing to God, and the elders then sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We were made for worship. That is what we were made for. We were made to sing. I love hearing my daughter, she'll do this a lot, walk through the house and she'll just sort of have a song she's singing all the time. And it's just joy overflowing, bubbling up in her heart and coming out her mouth. It's a lot of nonsense. It's just sort of sounds and she's using words she's just coming up with. She's reflecting upon what's happening. Our song is a song that is directed to things that we see about God and what we know that God has done. These 24 elders who represent the whole covenant people of God, the invisible church, the whole number of the elect, join with the angels and they sing to the Lord a song of their own origin. They praise God for giving them life. How antithetical is this song to the song of unbelieving men? So, for instance, this sort of humanist today that has been liberated and unshackled by Christ's presence in his life says, man is the measure of all things. That song has no place in the throne room of heaven. In fact, we ought sing no songs 
but have no place in the throne of heaven. And you do not step into the throne room of heaven and say, me, I. You say, all glory and honor unto the one who made us. Our songs of praise ought always be directed to something about God or what God has done. Even now we can join them. Now we will not sing now like we will one day then because our worship is heavily influenced by what we see. And the reason we struggle with worship now in this life is because we do not see Christ as we will one day see him. Because our hearts are out of one side of the mouth singing praises on Sunday morning, and we see it in church specifically, and with another side of our mouth or mind, we're thinking about something else. We're distracted. I can think of some places, though, in my life where I was absolutely not distracted. I remember my wedding day. I was nervous, very nervous. I don't know why I was nervous. I guess because it was a big event. And I'm standing there at the the front of the the aisle, and I'm sort of, this thing's going. I'm getting married today. And then the doors open, and the music is playing, and there's my bride standing, and it just, "Mm." do you know what bokeh is? Bokeh is this effect where you have a very nice camera lens, and it changes with the aperture. The aperture is open very wide, and so what it does is it enables you to focus on one object, and then everything else just turns into this sort of buttery, creamy background. (laughs) There she is. And the whole way down, I'm going, I'm just enjoying the moment. And the reason I'm enjoying the moment is because I'm about to get married. And this person who's coming down this aisle has for some reason, (laughs) of her own free volition, said, okay. When we are in the presence of Almighty God, we behold him. And though the angels have all of these eyes and they see everything in heaven and on earth, their gaze is so directed and their affections are so directed, they are upon Christ. It is, in fact, in our worship of Christ that we rightly behold everything else. Because what is the vow? Forsaking all others. We say that when we get married. And so it's not just that time you see your wife in her beautiful dress, or ladies, you see your husband in his nice suit, and you think, I like that guy. But the vow is you will always look at your wife that way even when you see other women or other opportunities. That the gaze of your spouse is to be predominant in every decision you ever make. When we behold Christ, when we behold the triune Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, everything else becomes secondary to the exercise of knowing him and making him known. That is how we are to join. We join in the song of the creator. And we say, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and praise. The first portion of the song contains who the song about is the song about. I didn't say that well. 
but I think he caught my meaning. It's about the triune Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when we behold God as he is, we say what? Worthy are you because you are creator. Now, built into that song of creation is also the theme of redemption. That we were not only made by Christ, but we are remade by Christ. Only the creator can recreate that which was broken and marred by the fall. And that is our song. And every song is built upon this theme. When we move through the Psalter, every every psalm is built upon this theme that we are made for God, and so we ought to live in light of that reality. When we are mourning, we mourn in light of God's sovereignty. When we rejoice, we do so in light of God's sovereignty. It is all built upon this theme that we are made by God and we are made for God. And what we see of God is his power, his holiness, and his eternality. Where do we see his power? Well, he made everything. That's power. He spoke and into nothing, from nothing, save the own creativity and power of his word, the word of his power, as we confess, he created all things. And not only did he create, but built into this concept of creation is providence, is ruling, is superintendence. His decrees are secure and effective. His holiness is his sinless perfection. He cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt. He controls sin sinlessly. That God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the plan of redemption, brought about righteousness because he is righteous and his eternality. He is the Alpha and Omega. Look, who was, verse 8, who was and is and is to come. And who God is is intimately tied to how he acts. It's not true for us, is it? I call myself a Christian, but I do a lot of unchristian things. I sin, I'm jealous, I'm angry. All of these things are a reflection of my inconsistency. God is never not God. He is always good. He is always righteous. He is always king. He controls all things. Who else can you sing this of? Worthy are you, O who? We put other people, including ourselves, upon this throne. But what more can be said? If people were to record you truly, and they were to record your life in all the actions you would ever do and have ever done, what would it say? Of Christ, there is no variation in theme. Of the Lord, there is no variation. He is good. He is kind. He is gracious. He is the origin of all things. And to him, glory and honor and power. And none of this if he were not good. Guess who would not be here if he was not gracious? There would be no elders. We would not sing, would we, if there was no redemption? And so what we find in chapter 4 is something that can only happen 
if God is good and God is gracious. Not just infinitely righteous, infinitely holy, 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 but also the one who is made and redeems. So I would encourage you in this way. Whatever you see of earth, whatever you think of the counsels of men, let us never forget who sits at the center of time and space. He is the great governor of us all. He is our great king. Let us pray.